Welcome to NREI's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at NREIOnline.com. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. We're going to dive into this week's story, but this week's story is a special guest, and that is Calvin Schnur. Calvin is a NAREIT Senior Vice President, Research and Economic Analyst. He analyzes developments in the macroeconomy and their impact on REITs and commercial property markets and on financial returns to REITs. Good afternoon, David. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Well, I, I'm doing fine. This is, a, this is quite the guest we've got on today. Yeah. Thank you, for, thank you so much for coming, Calvin. I appreciate being invited. I guess, you know, we could start with there's this uh, report that um, NAREITs put out that's looking at what happened with uh, just kind of a su- summary of fourth quarter earnings and whatnot. So what are some of the, the, the high-level highlights we can take away from how REITs performed uh, last year, in, 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 especially in the fourth quarter? Yeah, the biggest highlight, the biggest takeaway is that REITs had record earnings in mm-hmm. the fourth quarter of last year. Or if you look at the year as a whole in 2019, they had a record amount of earnings in terms of funds from operation, FFO, the, the primary mm-hmm. earnings measure, uh, which, which is kind of a surprise because a year, year and a half ago, most people were saying, well, a downturn is inevitable. We right. expect a downturn. Mm-hmm. You did not expect record earnings. This is a very solid industry today. And you think that was driven... I mean, from our perspective, we saw that you know fundamentals held strong, capital markets were were good, lowering the you know interest rates were kind of be, being drawn down in the second half of the year. So some of that just helped fuel the fundamentals in the industry. Is that is that generally? Would you agree with that? That's right. I focus a lot on the fundamentals, and and some of their performance is because of REITs, but a lot of what the REITs have done, mm-hmm. a lot of it is just the industry overall. The commercial real estate real estate industry is not overbuilding. Right. A lot of times in the past, you've seen boom bust cycles, and the bust comes because you had a really big boom. Well. We have, I wouldn't say we haven't had a boom. We haven't had exuberance. We right. haven't had so right. much excitement that you have an excess construction. That means that you have low vacancy rates and that gives you good rent growth. And I mean, the story varies a little bit by, by property type, of course. But, uh, um, you know, I think, you know, retail we know has had its challenges. But beyond that, it seems like most of the other sectors are uh, performing very strongly, multifamily, industrial. I mean, we, we do our own, you know, bit of research. We look at some of these sectors and it always seems like, you know, industrials going gangbusters, multifamily is always popular. Then even, you know, office is still pretty strong. Retail's got some challenges, but even within that, there are pockets that are still doing well. Yeah, retail has its challenges, but they're meeting them. Uh, mm-hmm. They're meeting them with, you know, greater and lesser degrees of success. One that I would say is the the freestanding retail, the net lease. Right. Um, they're actually performing very well. They right. don't really face a whole lot of competition from e-commerce. This is standalone buildings that have, you know, pharmacies, other things like that, restaurants. Um, and they're, they're not really being impacted by the e-commerce. Uh, shopping centers and regional mm-hmm. malls have had some uh, impact. But this, another surprising thing from this report is they have very high occupancy. Mm-hmm. Their vacancy rates have not been a problem because they've been able to have new tenants coming right. in to take the space. Now, sometimes their their earnings has, has slowed because of that, because if you have some transition and turnover, you have some vacancies and, and it, it's not a strong sector, but they're meeting the challenge. Yeah. I think one of the trends that we talked about recently was they get like these things called ghost kitchens coming in and taking some space in, in retail centers so, or, or some other non-traditional uses, just moving more towards service-oriented retail. So even if there are, you know, we know about the number of retailers that have closed stores and some of them have struggled, it does seem like the most creative 
uh, owners and developers have been able to find uh, solutions for filling space with with tenants that can that can still deliver those returns. Well, those solutions depend an awful lot on the market where mm -hmm. they're operating. Um, there are I, I don't want to ignore the fact that there are some markets that are are struggling, but they tend to be smaller cities that don't have population growth and don't have a vibrant local economy. You need a strong local economy. You look at the bigger cities though, and those markets have you know good regional mall performance. Um, we've done some analysis of the malls that are owned by REITs. And I think most people are familiar that REITs own the higher quality properties, right. but aside from just the grade, the quality grade, an A, B, or C, if you look, the REITs own properties in areas with higher household income. Mm -hmm. The REITs own malls in areas with greater population density. So what does that mean? You have more shoppers with more money to spend. So the REITs have actually been on the on the winning side to the extent that some of the properties are faring better than others. Right. So just the, the quality of the portfolios and the operators is just, so we're not talking about the overall, necessarily the overall picture. We're talking about the top in some cases the, the top end here that's right and you know they, they they do have challenges they do have challenges because the overall retail industry not the retail property but the retail right. store is changing right. so the very large big box the the main general merchandise stores are having less of a footprint there are smaller stores that are coming in and you mentioned you know, ghost kitchens or things that come up temporarily if sometimes they're not paying as much rent mm -hmm. uh, but then you're looking for longer term tenants and generally the inline stores the inline retailers pay more per square foot than the the large anchor stores so there's a strategy for generating good returns on these properties still so segueing from you know looking back at 2019 now we sort of stand at this um, very interesting I guess to put a mildly interesting moment with, you know, some of the challenges that are that have been happening in the last few days. What does that What does that tell you? And what What are you looking at to over the next? I mean, not necessarily the next week, but maybe the next months around. You know, because we don't want to. I mean, get sucked into any kind of overreactions one way or the other. But there's obviously some challenges right now. So what is this going to mean? And what What do you see happening for for, for the sector over the next you know year or six right. months or so? Yeah, the first thing that is in my mind always is this is a public health crisis, and mm -hmm. this is this is something that is is more than economics. This is affecting the lives and health of, of tens of thousands of people in the U.S. and and across the world. But it, it's actually gotten severe enough that it's also affecting the economy. It's also affecting either their livelihood, their investments, uh, and that's something that we need to watch carefully. Mm -hmm. So if I look at the earnings report that we published today uh, for REITs. They had record earnings in the fourth quarter of last year. They had very high occupancy, um, very solid. But what that means is they are in a good position to deal with the challenges. It doesn't uh -huh. mean there are no challenges. There are certainly challenges. I think that they're, they're going to come through uh, reasonably well, but it means that basically they've got low leverage. They've reduced mm -hmm. their use of debt relative to common equity. Uh, they've lengthened the maturity of their debt. They are well prepared for it. They're as well prepared for a shock like this as they could have been. And I think that that sort of speaks to what you were saying before. There's not been overdevelopment either. So there's the, the strong fundamentals combined with discipline on the balance sheets sort of puts them in a position to absorb a shock. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's a good thing. <laughs> it seems like a good thing. Yeah. And, the, and there's a lot of diversity within the sector. We were mm -hmm. talking about retail. Uh, if, if I look at the whole economy, the 
parts of the market that are hurt the most are the ones that services with right. like a very short time frame. So mm-hmm. the airlines, if you cancel an airline ticket, you're, you're just not going there. And the airlines have really suffered. Same thing with the hotels. Uh, the general entertainment are also suffering. And we see that in the REIT space as well. The lodging and resort sector has has taken quite a hit from this. Right. But then you look at some of the others, um, things like Infrastructure, which are the cell towers that transmit uh, the data and communications, you know, even the day that the overall stock market fell 7.6%, S&P was down down mm-hmm. 15% for the year, the cell tower infrastructure sector held on to its gains for the year. Mm. Um, the cell storage sector held on to its gains mm. for the year. The data centers that, you know, people think about the cloud being up in the cloud. It's actually in a physical building on the ground, many of them owned by REITs right. that have the servers. And they're at about even for the year. So these are sectors within the REIT universe that are, are holding their own, even though the overall market right now is grappling with a much bigger problem. Right. So it, it seems like the level of resiliency may depend on your asset class, also depending on how much, um, what particular, you know, because different industries are going to be affected different ways. And like, it makes sense. You know, we, I think we always talk about hotels being the most volatile because you're dealing with one day leases in essence, as opposed to other property types like the net lease you're talking about where you've got 30, 40 year leases or some of these other, you know, more stable kind of tenants that are not necessarily going to be re- reacting in the short term to anything that's happening. Yeah, exactly right. You know, I, I spend quite a bit of time talking with investors, whether they're large institutional investors or retail investors and groups. And I often talk about not only the benefit of real estate in a diversified portfolio, because real estate has an exposure that's different from financial stocks, tech stocks, mm-hmm. uh, consumer stocks, but even within the REIT space, the different economic factors affecting the data centers versus the apartments versus the office versus the retail that gives you protection against overall volatility. Mm-hmm. And then on the um, capital market side of the equation, um, you know, we saw the fed drop interest rates by 50 basis points. There's talk of doing that, maybe doing another rate decrease. Um, and, and you do, you did refer, you did talk about how in general the REITs have good balance sheets. They're not over leveraged. They've got a good amount of capital on hand. Um, what is that? What do you kind of see happening with capital markets for REITs? Do you see them kind of? Is there going to be more access to debt, more access to equity, or maybe just kind of staying put? Like, is there much? I guess I'm trying to stumbling towards the question of like offerings. Are we going to see debt and equity offerings from the REITs this year, or or? You know, would you have any expectations around that? I would expect the current market environment is putting everything on hold. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants to issue capital. No one wants to buy a new new financial asset in this type of market. And that makes sense. But if you take a, a bit broader perspective, last year, REITs raised a, a record amount of capital, right. quite a bit through equity capital. They also issued a fair amount of bond debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that was refinancing exist, previously existing bond debt. Uh, but the REITs last year went back on an expansion, back into expansion mode. Their net acquisitions rose last year to about $34 billion, which was up from $3 billion the, in, in 2018. That's the most number of properties that they bought since 2015. And that's largely because their share price had recovered, that they had a good, a good cost of capital and a good outlook. I would expect if we get through this coronavirus issue um, over the next two months or so, that the REITs are going to look around and uh, continue to purchase properties. They're going to be back issuing equity probably. 
and that $34 billion, does that also include merger and acquisition or is that just trade no, I'm, property? I'm just talking about like property, portfolio property acquisitions, yeah. not M&A. When people talk about M&A, usually they mean M or they're talking about A, they're talking about acquiring a whole company. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about an existing company going buying one right. building from some other owner. So the reasons were very, like compared to some of the other kinds of owners were very active. That's right. Any other kind of like a uh, big takeaways that that um, uh, you got for us right now? You know, we were we were, we were talking about their 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 leverage and the strong balance sheets, and that's because they they raised this equity capital not just last year but in previous years, and that's actually given them a lot of benefits in their operating performance. If you look at net interest expense mm-hmm. as a share of net operating income, it, it's a record low. Uh, it's about half of what it was a decade ago. That's a combination of several factors. One, they have lower leverage. The other is they were lower market interest rates. Uh, there's a, another thing to look at just in terms of the risks. If I look at the interest coverage ratio, how much is their current income compared to their interest payments? That's uh, at or near a record high and a weighted average aggregate for the overall industry. And again, that's because you have low leverage and low interest rates, but also because you have strong earnings. What that says is that they're, they've, they've got a good cushion for dealing with the market ahead. I, I started off by giving a relatively benign view of, of being able to come through this mm-hmm. coronavirus situation, but that, that may not happen. Uh, if we do end up having a deeper or a longer uh, market disruption than, than what, what consensus seems to expect, although that expectation changes day by day, if we have something that lasts longer, they've got the wherewithal to get through this. Mm-hmm. So we talked um, a bit you know, about retail, industrial, some of these other niche sectors. One of the big ones is multifamily and just you know, uh, residential in general. What are some of the, the takeaways you got from that market? You know, that sector is actually a lot different from all the others. Uh, many of the others have a, a reasonably good su- balance of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the apartment market actually has, has a shortage. There's a supply shortage. And this is not just apartments. There's a shortage of single-family homes overall. Uh, we're, we're 12 years away from when the, financial, when the, house, when the mortgage crisis hit. Right. And when that happened, builders really stopped building they really cut back their construction. And at first they needed to do that because there was an excess. There was a lot of construction in 2005, six and seven of single family homes. But the overall amount of housing units, single family homes and apartments has been so far below the pace of population growth that right now there are shortages in pretty much every market in the mm-hmm. country. So what that means is the apartment sector is, is really quite tight. Um, and then some other residential sectors in the REITs as well, manufactured homes and single family rentals. And those are other ways that people are choosing to rent some places to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and those sectors have very low vacancy rates. Um, rent growth has been fairly good. Rent growth would probably be higher, except for the fact that high rents are already causing some affordability challenges right. in mo- most markets. What that does, though, is it means that even if you had a, a big supply bulge coming on in the next couple of years, which we don't see. If you had a big supply bulge coming along, you have a lot of potential renters ready to come and rent those spaces. That that gives you a lot of resilience to that sector. So how does some of the talk then of um, you know rent control that's hitting some of the markets, how is that affecting the, the, the kind of activity that um, that is going to happen on the development front? Yeah, rent control is addressing what I just mentioned, that there are affordability challenges. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I think we all recognize how many people are paying a very high share of their income 
in the oh, rent. And we're in New York City, so we're kind of yeah. New York City's a <laughs> one of the New York ones. City's even a, another step beyond then. Um, rent control is a really blunt tool for trying to mm -hmm. increase the supply. I started off by saying that there's a supply shortage, and rent control says that you're going to make it even less attractive to build. Uh, we need to have more development, you know, things like zoning issues, things like making sure that financing is available, things like making sure you have a, a good construction labor force. Uh, those, are the, those are what essential to provide the supply. What we really need is more supply rather than something that is just trying to cap the rents. Right now, affordability itself is a cap on rents. Right. So, I mean, in, in terms of this to, um, supply issue, I mean, it does seem in New York like we've got a lot of high-end stuff happening still. So is this is this true across the price spectrum? Are we more talking about like a like mid-price and affordable, where there's a development issue versus um, high-end, or is there also in some markets you know more demand for 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 upper end too? I'm not joking when I say all of the above. Okay. Um, I, I wrote a research paper two years ago with a colleague, Lexi Thompson, and what we looked at was how the low home ownership rate had spilled over into every part of the apartment market. Uh, home ownership rates fell quite a bit during the crisis. They've been edging up over the past three, three and a half years. But what that means is that households that in a, in a different era would have been a homeowner, right. might have been a first time home buyer, are now renting apartments. Uh, you talk to a lot of the apartment REIT operators, some of the other people in the in the in the apartment business, and they'll say that their target market is 100,000, 150,000 for renters. Now that's unheard of. What what that means is that the shortage of all types of housing uh, just spills down because then those people who are renting the new apartments are pushing the people in previous periods might have been renting those down into the you know, more mid-range housing. So we really need to have more of all types of housing. Interesting. I mean, since the crisis, we have had this development of like, you know, this whole class of REITs, which didn't even exist before the single family rental REITs, you know, powered, I think originally by some private equity, but now, you know, we've got a number of really substantial uh, REIT operators in that space. So that's been a very that's been an interesting development just to cover from from my seat, but also, I mean, from from the REIT perspective, to have this like new kind of class emerge in the past decade or so is a, is a pretty interesting phenomenon. You know, if the REITs and the other institutional investors hadn't stepped in, it would have been a completely different situation. When people look at the housing crisis, I just referred to the drop in the home ownership rate. Right. Most people focus on the households. Wow, there were 5 million households that went from being owners to being renters. That means that there were 5 million homes mm -hmm. that had to be bought, financed, and managed. Now, there have been single-family rentals for decades. You know, since as long as someone sure. built a home and then traded up, there's been a single-family rental. Most of them have been owned by mom and pop right, investors, right, small right. ones. Um, it required about $600 billion dollars to purchase all those homes out of foreclosure, convert them and prepare them for rental. Now, households did some of that, but institutional money came into the cities that were hardest hit. And what they did is they stabilized the market. Right. Yeah, it did seem like that. Because I mean, original projections were, this is just going to be a glut, it's going to take years, but then once you had this bulk buying, I mean, part of it was like enabling the bulk buying of, 
of houses in foreclosure, correct? Which, which was not something that, that could be done very easily in the past. That's right. If you remember in 2009, 2010, the biggest question was all these homes that are being foreclosed, there are vacant homes with broken windows. That's terrible for housing values. Right. What, are, what is this glut of dilapidated vacant homes going to do to housing values? Well, these institutional investors came in, fixed the windows, cut the grass, rented them out. That's good for the neighborhood. Yeah. Thank you. I think we've touched on a lot of different areas here. I want to thank you so much for uh, coming in and, and uh, answering all my questions. Well, I appreciate the discussion. Very interesting questions. All right, guys. Thank you so much for your time today. Calvin, I want to thank you for being here. You were a great guest. David, thank you so much for bringing him in. That, that was a very interesting conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you bet. And I want to thank all of you for listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at NREI, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NREI or Informa. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only.